Hello everyone, this is Marwa Eldovini, the host of RWE's of Robotics podcast. Today's episode is going to be about soft robotics and artificial intelligence inside robots. This episode took around six months in terms of preparation and taking agreement to make it possible. So I would like to say thank you for Airbus communication team for the effort. Actually, I was always fascinated by aerospace technology and I, I did even my master's degree in anti-stealth technology for safe piloting of unmanned aerial vehicle. And I was always fascinated by um, space tech. So I think that was a really good opportunity to discuss soft robotics and topology optimization and how they get inspiration to design the aircraft. And a lot of questions I had on my mind when I was a student. So I hope you will enjoy it as much as I did. So in this episode, we have two guests. First guest is Romarek Radun. He leads Airbus Artificial Technology and Computing Technology Roadmap for Airbus. And he is reporting directly to Airbus CTO. And second guest is Ruben Hilprides. He is a vice president of industry technology. So I hope you will enjoy this episode. And if you enjoy it, please uh, share it with your uh, colleague or and support us. And I hope you enjoy it. Thank you. Hello and welcome to ITWE Soft Robots Podcast. Um, could you please introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, hello. Thanks. Um, my name is uh, Romaric Rodon. I am uh, 45. Um, I'm married. I have three kids. And uh, I started to work on artificial intelligence in uh, 1999. And it happens to be still uh, an exciting field of activity. I joined Airbus in 2001. And I am a senior expert in artificial intelligence, uh, leading uh, the artificial intelligence uh, on computing roadmap uh, for Airbus. Thank you for joining us and for Renhul, if you can introduce yourself. Yeah, hello, my name is Renhul Freitas. I am 42 years old, uh, a bit younger than Omeric. I'm also married, I have two children um, and I work obviously also for Airbus in the field of industrial systems and manufacturing. I'm responsible for the research roadmap for that field. Um, Yeah, and I joined Airbus like nine years ago and was in different functions from helicopters um, to a supplier of Airbus, which also belongs to the big enterprise, and then finally in the R&T of Airbus. Uh, I think that's much about me. Maybe one thing, uh, I, I love science fiction, and which is maybe a bit related to our topic as well. That's wonderful. So thanks so much again for joining us. And it took a lot of time to schedule this uh, meeting and podcast, so thank you for your time. So I would like to go back for you with a question about childhood. Uh, if I can ask about that for you, how was a childhood for you? Do you remember any memory we're interested in science or technology? If you can answer this question about childhood. Yeah, yeah well, I, I might say, um, so in my childhood, the first thing which would connect me into something like robotics or artificial intelligence was through science fiction by reading um, actually Isaac Asimov, uh, one of my favorite authors at that time, and reading robot stories. And actually in those books, for him, maybe he foresaw actually the future because robots and artificial intelligence was the same. He called this uh, positronic computers. And yeah, this was my first um, my first contact with that, I would say. So I was not building robots so much, but I was uh, envisioning and reading about it. 
and which yeah which which made me also stay with the topic i never thought that 30 years later i might really work on something like this wonderful and for romeric do you, do you have any memories about childhood your childhood no i mean it's more the childhood of my sons i mean when it links to robotic it's more about uh, programming with them lego mindstorm but not yet doing a lot of artificial intelligence uh, on top of it that's great so the topic today about robotics and AI in, uh, in aviation and aerospace industry, and especially for Airbus. But before going, we need to ask you this question. What is the first robot you build? Maybe before joining Airbus um, earlier in your uh, studies. So what is the first robot you build? And what's the feeling you had at the first robot you build? So for me, actually, I, I never had to build a robot. I, I'm dealing with the topic of robotics. What I can say is what was the first robot I saw, and that was a classical KUKA robot in production um, when I was working on projects on that. But building one, um, I have actually not done. Maybe maybe it's still to come. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Okay, and for America, do you have any memories about the first robot you built? The robots I'm currently building are more toy robots with, with my kids, but... Uh... I mean, had chance uh, in my professional life to see many kinds of different robots, uh, including robots for space uh, missions. And uh, yes, I'm always amazed uh, about uh, these robots uh, and keen to bring more uh, artificial intelligence on board these robots. Great. So I think many students would like to ask this question since you work in Airbus and they want to know what kind of robotics and AI uh, projects you doing uh, in Airbus. So if, first of all, how you would define robotics and AI from your perspective and what could be the most important question you should consider while working in aerospace sector for robotics and AI? Um, yeah, I think we, we'll try to, to give short and simple answers, even if we could elaborate on, on a lot on, on, on such a question. Uh, we would go with saying, um, okay, a robot is a machine that can do tasks similar to a human, and um, an artificial intelligence is performing actions that, if performed by humans, would be considered intelligent. So we try to use uh, artificial intelligence on robotics uh, to improve percepti perception on decision making. And the global trends, uh, trend is to learn through experience data instead of uh, pre-programming everything. And inside Airbus, we can really consider uh, dif different grades uh, on robotics AI applications. So we have the heavy classical robotic system, industrial robots, uh, which are used for productions and uh, eventually uh, maintenance of uh, flying platforms, whatever they are, aircraft, helicopters, and, and so on. But also there, there, are, there is uh, the, the rise of the light robotics automation uh, applications, which are developed to provide assistance to various types of operators uh, on ground and also on board. And uh, we, it goes up to pilots or astronaut, uh, astronauts. Um, and this topic is closely related to, to the development of a virtual assistant. Um, what I would like to add is that more generally, artificial intelligence can be seen as a new way to program software 
and therefore largely applicable. So robotics is, robotics is therefore only one of the main fields of uh, AI exploration in Airbus. And when it comes to some key questions, um, so for sure we would like to, uh, oh, can we make our robots uh, more accurate, more repeatable, more reliable, more dependable uh, generally? Or oh, we can make our automation systems more adaptive, uh, able to perceive their environment uh, and solve uh, problems, disruptions, unforeseen situations? Or oh, we can we improve collaboration between robots and humans, uh, notably using artificial intelligence uh, virtual assistant? Or can we check the correctness of uh, the artificial intelligence and qualify its performance? And this last topic is really linked to ensure the safety of uh, robotic systems. So, yeah, so these are some of the key questions. Yeah, I think you said many interesting points, and I think uh, many students can resonate and audiences will with these uh, points. Um, yeah, I think we will cover that and later on. So, but before going, um, maybe I would like to ask you what is the most beautiful and profound simple equation that inspire you while you're working and what you're doing at Airbus? Something maybe mm. fundamental for you. Okay, so uh, beautiful, profound and simple equations are often uh, physics-based uh, equations. So we can quote, uh, for example, the Navier-Stokes uh, equation for uh, computational fluid dynamics. But what is, I think, quite new, and uh, another, another way to answer your question is that um, with artificial intelligence, there is also the possibility to learn uh, new equations in bracket uh, based on learning uh, correlation between data. And uh, I say within bracket because this represents at the same time a great opportunity and uh, also uh, a great threat uh, because we learn correlation and it does not mean causality and we could be affected by unwanted bias or spurious correlation. But these are a new kind of way to learn equations. And I find this very interesting because we are not anymore um, only with equations which could come from physics. We can really learn new things, but also we need to be cautious uh, about that. I think it's very interesting if you can elaborate more this point, because I think uh, that's super interesting point you said that how to be cautious about learning. What, what do you mean? If you can give an example. I, I, I will uh, give you more example. I mean, mostly we do have to care about uh, guarantees we provide on what we learn. So we have to find a good balance between performance on the one side and guarantees on the other side because we do apply AI in many applications where uh, safety is uh, involved, for example. So we need to prove uh, that our design of the system is safe. So we need to really define to define an architecture which maybe make use of some AI, but which is still uh, safe. And uh, this is uh, a, a key aspect for aerospace uh, industry. Mm. That's a, that's a good point as well. You say it's interesting. Do you think that uh, with the descriptive model techniques for if you design like a, a certain structure for um, the airplane, so 
Do you think it is still challenging to get all the parameter you want for your model to just predict how the behavior would be? Do you think it is still challenging or how you can overcome that you make uh, like intelligent uh, a prediction about uh, how the structure would uh, perform? It's it's for sure challenging, but um, I mean, we, we have... Uh, we, now we can combine um, model-based approach and uh, data-based approach uh, with AI uh, to have uh, better modeling. And this is uh, what we try to do. We try to, to use the best of, of the two worlds together, uh, doing some, some hybridation. Uh, but uh, the, the two have uh, interesting uh, features and for sure, uh, aerospace industry is, is also an industry where we do have a lot of data available. Uh, so we can also learn from data at the same time that we really use uh, physical equations. And we really try to, to use the two together. Um, and, um, but still, still, it's an open challenge. And we have a new tool, uh, which is AI, which could help us to go a bit further. So I think the question related here, I think that's something related to safety and how to have intelligent uh, uh, descriptive models for designing parts of airplane. But I think this is a question related here. What is the most inspiring living creature for airplane design? Of course, there's a lot of stages happening to get an inspiration, either biomimicry or biomimetic. So if you can tell us more about how the design, because we know there's a, a new generation like Airbus 38 and is 380 and so if you can tell us more uh, how the process is going for this inspiring to get inspiration for your design process for airplane design um i mean we, we we can always come back to birds uh i mean birds are have always been uh, very uh, inspiring um but okay, uh, it's still not expected that um, we will flap uh, wings uh, of our aircraft. Um, but more seriously, we are looking at um, the way birds are flying uh, in formation, uh, for example, on uh, investigating whether we can operate uh, commercial aircraft uh, flying in formation. And uh, there are many topics where we uh, are looking at uh, bionic inspiration. Uh, so if we come back to robotic, I mean, really looking at uh, speeder, uh, I mean, spider-based robotic systems, snake arm robots. I mean, we, we do look at all uh, na nature uh, is uh, providing uh, really interesting uh, kinematics. And also, um, when we look at um, brain capacity uh, in, in nature, I mean, if we look at uh, insects such as dragonfly, I mean, not only the dragonfly is very uh, amazing in terms of his um, flying capacity, but in terms of controls, it's also capable to implement uh, flight controls which are far beyond what we can develop with very few neurons. So we have a lot to learn uh, really from, from nature, both for uh, the design, but also for the controls. And uh, yeah, we do look at that. Mm -hmm. So if you can tell us, Renal, about your work uh, at Airbus for our audience, what are you exactly working on right now? 
So yeah, to at least to frame it into focus a bit of uh, of robotics, we are I mean we are working on a broad field of of applications, not only for robotics, also for AI. But in the robotics field, we are currently trying to let's say increase um, the application of robotics in our production. Today we are not doing we don't have a very high level of uh, autonomous automation in our production. Um, we have a few classical robotic systems, but more and more we try to also introduce introduce what we would call light robotics or soft robotics for several tasks. So one of those tasks is clearly logistics um, to feed uh, our, our lines with the, with the material, but we have also more and more assembly tasks. And for the introduction of automation, um, let's say in a human dominated environment in a manufacturing, we first try to focus on tasks which are, uh, we call it 3D, for dull, dirty, and dangerous. The question may be related here about what are the most misconceptions about robotics or AI and, and aerospace and aviation industry? They think something maybe you and Merrick have witnessed, or maybe the general public have misconception about it. Uh, so I think on this, the, the first misconception is really that robots or, or AI would completely replace workers everywhere in the factory, um, at least in, in the aerospace. Um, I think, of course, we try, to, um, we try to change our production system for more automation. But the most successful systems are actually where we, where we achieve to have an integration of highly skilled humans with um, automated systems. The replacement, at least until today, or a pure replacement, a one-to-one -one replacement, normally is, is not the most effective solution and also not the most cost-effective solution. And another misconception I think today is that you would be able to take just AI off the shelves as it is, as it's currently available, and then directly apply it. Um, instead, it's more that, that we have to build um, a system for learn for learning how to integrate AI with what our workers are doing and you need to have let's say an AI compatible environment that you need to build where you can really use it you cannot just take it as one brick put it into your system and then make it work um, I think that's a too simplistic approach because we there's a lot of let's say since the rise of of deep learning in the, in, in the last years as a, let's say, refreshed field, there's a lot of hope that you can just simply magically put some things and then automatically everything will become better. But instead, I think we believe that you more and more have to have an AI-capable learning system overall, which includes a lot of aspects. Just simply like, like the robots or also soft robots and automated systems cannot one-to-one -one replace a worker or working routines. Uh, you can also not take an AI and think that it can simply replace a human brain and it's done. So it's aspects of a bigger system where they can be integrated and bring a lot of value. And uh, I think this is what what you or what we have understood for ourselves that um, you cannot take a naive approach, just take a technology and put it as a brick into the system and then improve the system by this. And I think maybe there's a question also uh, since our situation about COVID-19 situation. And I think we had this discussion before about uh, how it would affect uh, the aerospace industry in general. So maybe what are the biggest technological roadblocks that could face aerospace sector 
after COVID situation? I think there's a lot of changes maybe happening. If you can tell us more detail about what is uh, the roadblocks do you think in this year and coming here uh, from, from your experience? Yeah, I think on this one, I mean, it, it's two things. We have the, the normal uh, technological roadblocks um, that we had um, before the crisis. Um, and I think for the aerospace sector as such, um, one of the big things is the is the increasing congestion of aerospace. This was what we had before the crisis because the um, we are every fifteen years we were um, seeing a duplication of the worldwide um, aerospace, um, so of the number of, of flights and travels, which leads to to a high congestion of the airspace and also leads to um, let's say a reduced um, on time availability of flights but another one uh, which is directly connected is also the uh, the switch to sustainable aviation industry which has as little impact on environment as possible um, and there's a, a lot of goals that we have there so these were the let's say without covid the challenges now in in crisis times um, with covid we have to battle against several things on the one hand side there is the decline of the air travel, of course, it has dropped in, in the highest time of the crisis by 90%, which is uh, um, which comes to a huge loss of uh, of travel capacity and in the end of revenue as well. Um, so we need to keep up the industry or to keep it surviving in, in this crisis. But also we have, um, let's say, a lot of customers who are flying uh, being afraid that they can either spread um, the disease or get infected on airplanes. So we we are trying to re-establish the trust in aerospace and that flying is actually safe and that flying in an aircraft under conditions that we have done today um, and that we have now improved also due to the crisis is actually safer than just being in a normal room with another person. Um, and we have created an Airbus an initiative which is called Keep Trust in Air Travel. I can maybe give you later a link to this initiative, which you can add to the podcast, um, where we show how actually airplanes are exchanging the air, how we have uh, how we have filter systems, and not because of the crisis, we always had them, how we have filter systems, which are filtering more than 99% of all the air particles of the renewed air, and also how we are now applying procedures to um, disinfect the cabins. So these kind of things, we try to show the public um, exactly the level of risk that they have when flying, which is really a, a very low risk to gain also the, the, the trust back. So that's something which is currently immediate in, uh, uh, in crisis time. So thank you for highlighting this point. Yeah. But again, I think that's a question about what could be the most technical, uh, important technical element in aerospace industry that makes it, it excel. You mentioned something about safety, and I think something that, that uh, most people prefer the uh, aviation, I think, because it's more safer than uh, other transportation techniques. But if you can tell from technical perspective, what is the most important technical element that make aerospace industry excel? Well, that's a, a very good question. Um, I think what's really the special thing about the aerospace um, industry as such is that it actually is a, a complex system of systems. 
where you have on the one hand side the vehicle design and manufacturing, which is a complex thing. I mean, for example, an A320 um, has roughly something like 3 million um, parts and, um, and systems that need to be integrated. But then you have also the flight operations itself, what the pilots are doing. And then again, the safety system with all the, uh, with, with all the safety authorities, the system that controls um, the suppliers, that controls all the way how we design and how we are um, producing. And then again, you have a system of maintenance and ground infrastructure for all the aircrafts. And all those systems, they really are completely and tightly connected. And if you want to change one part of your aircraft design, everything else is impacted. So if you change the design of the wing, for example, for a new aircraft, you have to potentially go back to the flight operations and the training of pilots. Then you have to talk with the authorities about the safety system. And again, you have to change your maintenance and your ground infrastructure. So it's really a, a very complex system that functions uh, in the way today that delivers this very, very, very high safety level. And I think this is really something you don't see so much in, in other industries that you have major complex systems all interacting to deliver you then in, in the end what we what we call our normal flight experience that you just go to the airport enter an airplane you don't think of anything and you will uh, land at your uh, you will land at your destination but there's so much behind and at least for me this is the most uh, let's say impressive thing once you have seen all these aspects that's for me the most impressive thing about uh, aerospace i think it's so interesting what you mentioned and yeah i think many of the center don't know how much the much cost about uh, the tech behind it, and I think one of the interesting thing about uh, uh, incident happening in aerospace, for example, if you go in higher altitudes, the sensor could get frozen, and you have a false reading. And sometimes you have this question: I have to trust the machine or the sensor data, or trust my uh, intuition as a pilot in that case. So I don't know uh, this kind of scenario because it happens sometimes. Of course, it's not happening a lot, but some, it's some incident like the sensor just doesn't work, um, func malfunction because of the temperature, low temperature, and you get false data. So do you think in, in Airbus you have this kind of question whether you have to trust a human or a machine for a technical perspective? And do you think this kind of question is, is still uh, important or are you over uh, just to get over this question and you have higher level of safety? Well, I think the, it is I mean, it's it's a relevant question how we how we deal with um, trusting our sensors, trusting uh, and having humans in the loop. Um, actually, for aviation safety, this is uh, how should I say this is a constant relevant question. This is never this is never an old question. We are always dealing with this whenever we design something new. I mean, the basic principle of aeronautics design is to have redundance, that you have multiple systems so that in case of a doubt or an error with one system, you have at least two other systems which you can consult. And finally, always also a human in control of this. Um, I think this question becomes especially interesting when we talk about more and more using algorithms like AI, where we cannot um, easily verify or derive in uh, uh, based on, on, on known equations how they come to the conclusion and I think this is uh, this is exactly the topic where uh, Homeric is dealing with and this is the current front of I would say uh, of research on how to use also in the future um, AI based 
um, algorithms and decisions um, in our in our flying system in, in general. I think that the concept of redundancy, even in soft robotics and robotics in general, I think it's very important. But if you can tell example for redundancy, it's challenging that you wanted to have a system that's still functioning in case of failure. What what could be challenging example in aerospace uh, sector or Airbus, for example? Still challenging. Well, I have to think about. Um, I mean, we still we still have um, or we have today in every aircraft multiple redundant systems for um, for sensors for the uh, for the current flight status. Um, which exist already today, and maybe you saw um, that we are we were also quite publicly working on uh, visual recognition technologies to um, to use an AI for an aircraft to monitor where it is on the ground when it's taxiing and even do the takeoff based on visual recognition, which is something we have never done in the past. And if you do such an automated takeoff. For this, then, of course, there uh, is the question: How how much do you rely purely on the AI? Do you have always a pilot in the loop, or what are your what are your means um, to um, resolve any kind of mismatch between what uh, a machine would see or, or what the human in the loop would see? So I think, and this is really the actual kind of um, uh, research still done to have the right procedures. What you can, of course, you can do all kind of automatic things, but it's it's again, what about if you have a mismatch of perception? So maybe can we ask this question: uh, How do our past envision intelligence, or pushing the limit of intelligence for aerospace industry? What is the kind of vision for intelligence, or the the limits for intelligence, or pushing forward the vision of the intelligence in aerospace sector? Um, yeah, for I mean, for sure, intelligence is. Uh... We, we can spend uh, endless amount of time to discuss what is intelligence. I mean, um, in the context of uh, AI on robotics, um, I would refer to a virtual or a physical agent that is capable to partially or completely perform autonomously what is known as the ODA loop, which means observe, orient, decide, and act. So we're really coming back to uh, providing more autonomy uh, to uh, do the perception on the decision making um, and to implement that either in physical agents, uh, really robots or potentially virtual uh, agent. Um, so yeah, going back to the technology, this is the way I, I would go define it. And what kind of like uh, pushing the limit of intelligence? Do you think that there's vision like uh... Uh, five years, ten years, something we want to achieve. For example, many people dreaming still, we have it in the market, but still not really official release, flying uh, cars, or just um, just kind of sort of, uh, this kind of, so that people can, even people doesn't have a license, like private pilot license, can have uh, a flying car. Do you think this kind of intelligence, that's how you have this interaction between human and aircraft, how this interaction is happening in a more easier way. Do you think that something uh, could be related to intelligence design or something? Um, I mean, yeah, yeah. We, you, your question is linked to um, the, the kind of uh, applications uh, we, which we foresee 
so for, for sure there, there are some which are very inspiring uh, such as uh, uh, flying cars um, and, and we do have, have them on our agenda uh, what I want to say is um, more short-term uh, artificial intelligence uh, is already used to to accomplish many uh, tasks which uh, generate uh, value for, for Airbus, such as extracting information from satellite imagery or doing uh, predictive maintenance. Uh, it's true this is not the more inspiring, but already generate uh, a lot of value. And yes, when we want to think about the limits, uh, the, the, the limits are definitely AI used on board uh, flying platforms potentially for a safety critical, uh, I mean, for critical or safety critical missions. And there you can think about uh, urban air mobility, uh, for sure. I mean, you can start with commercial aircraft, military aircraft, helicopters, urban air mobility. And also we have on our radar uh, deep space uh, exploration mission. And uh, yes, here we, we would need uh, really to to, to, to tackle uh, some of the open uh, challenge we have uh, today with uh, uh, the existing uh, AI capabilities which we have. So we will need to go beyond uh, what we have uh, as of today. And um, the aspect of the collaboration with the human uh, is also key because uh, the more we will go for uh, AI, the more we have to invest on the human-machine uh, interaction aspect uh, because it will become uh, a critical aspect uh, as well. I mean, it is already, but it, it would be even more of a concern if we have something uh, like, uh, uh, like a virtual co-pilot, for example. Do you think that virtual copilot can be uh, something uh, applied in coming years, or because we didn't see it applied officially, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, we we are working. I mean, we have a roadmap towards uh, single uh, pilot operation. Uh, so the the approach is. Uh, I mean, for commercial aviation, uh, the approach is to try to reduce uh, the workload uh, for the pilot, uh, providing assistance to the pilot in order to move to, to single pilot operation. Uh, so after you can call it virtual assistant, virtual co-pilot, I mean, it, it, will, it, it could have very various kind of naming, but um, the aspect of uh, trying to reduce the workload of the pilot, uh, really what we are working on, and we are doing this in a very progressive manner, we don't expect it will be something uh, which will be, uh, uh, um, I mean, this is going to be a long journey and we are doing that together with um, really all the, um, uh, all the authorities to, to ensure we will improve the safety and not reduce it. And when I say improve the safety, always people think about the risk of an AI uh, systems uh, also, you can really think, I mean, in the context of urban air mobility, whether, what would be the safer? I mean, having an AI piloting uh, your flying cars or having yourself uh, piloting it. So AI is also really seen as a way to improve uh, the safety levels uh, we can obtain uh, for flying cars, but also for 
uh, commercial aircraft. So all, all these topics are on our agenda. Yeah, I think that's super important point. I think that maybe question out of time because sometimes people say that we don't have to address question, but I think that maybe cause a lot of problem. For example, you said something very interesting, and I think that's related to whether the the working with a virtual co-pilot it would be competitive or cooperative. And if you have like a like a critical decision during the flight, which one the system would accept? Is it the, the human pilot or just the virtual co-pilot? I don't know that maybe it's a silly scenario, but uh, I don't know how you envision this kind of um, working together with virtual co-pilot and human pilot. Do you think it is competitive? It's going to be competitive or cooperative system? No, it's definitely co it's definitely cooperative. Huh? I mean, uh, the, the 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 cockpit is designed as as a cooperative uh, uh, systems, and. Uh, there are many cases where uh, human uh, perceptions, uh, abilities on human decision-making capabilities will be uh, still far beyond uh, what we can uh, do with an AI. So for sure, we, we, really, we, we, we want the human to be in the best position to make the right decision. And therefore, we want to alleviate uh, and to reduce the workload for some of the stuff which we know we can automate with guarantees uh, but still the human is there to to take uh, the crucial uh, decisions and uh, it's really this aspect of uh, cooperation collaboration uh, which we uh, work towards so now we have a question from the audience from reddit community both airbus community and machine learning community the first question from Airbus Reddit community, they think that what are your thoughts on use uh, of automation in single aisle or any future project that will look like? Are we going to greatly increase the amount of manufacturing? Would you use, uh, would you use automation? Yeah, so I think that's a, a very good question. The Today, we, we already started to increase automation also in our existing programs. Um, and as I said earlier, the entry point for us is the work that is really not good to be done by humans for reasons of safety, reasons of health, um, what we call this dull, dirty, and dangerous work. So there we already increased automation. One good example is, for example, for example we have today, um, aircrafts are still um, riveted and bolted together, and you have to set a lot of, um, you have to... Uh, drill a lot of holes and you have to also set a lot of rivets and the drilling of holes is still happening um, in a lot of places manually so in some sections more than 40,000 holes need to be drilled and when you see people doing it inside an aircraft you sometimes have very very close spaces very tight spaces where somebody tries to squeeze in and and to make this drilling and those uh, we start more and more to use robots and robotic systems, light robotic systems, that are able to get in very tight spaces and do the, the drilling there. The same is for the inspection. So this is already happening, this is what we also try to do. And more and more we try to bring these kind of technologies also in our future assembly lines for future aircrafts. And to do this, so when we're thinking of the next single ale aircraft, um, one key for being able to apply more automation is really to design already your product in such a way. So there's a lot of rules you have to already respect into your design 
so that you can, let's say, in a in a economic way, um, apply uh, apply automation. So you have to go for standardized um, products. You need standardized tolerances, and you also need then standardized um, solutions um, for uh, for your industrial topics, which leads that you can use standardized robotic automation systems, because in a in a in a big enterprise you will need to be able to manage your fleet, also your fleet of robots and automated systems in a, in a simple way. And if you imagine you have 10,000 different um, automation systems or 10,000 different robotic systems that you need to maintain, that you need to program and operate, it's, it's much um, less economically feasible than if you just have uh, maybe 10 different kinds of systems which are able to do a wider range of, of applications or which are uh, which you can reuse because your design is made this way. So this is exactly what we try to implement now in the beginning um, of the creation of a new aircraft and to yeah to have it as a part of the of the design requirements from the beginning, what we call design for automation. That's a very good point. Yeah. Thank you for highlighting this point. Yeah. So the second question from machine learning really the community. Uh, the thing that as such for future project, are we going to see an increase in DFM with a view specifically towards automation to enable higher productivity and production rate when machines are used in manufacturing? What is the game you are into? Yeah, so it directly relates to what I said before. Design for manufacturing or design for automation is really also what we consider as the key for heavy application of robotic systems uh, in production. Um, we you can see this in new problems not only in the in a single ale let's say in a single ale potential follower but you see it also in running projects like the Eurodrone um, that we have in defense and space where in the uh, in the design phase already, we are considering these um, DFA or DFM aspects, so design for automation, from the conceptual phase. So even from the very first phase before we are ever going towards a prototype. Um, another field where it's also a matter of having it designed for it is the automated inspection. Um, that's actually not such a new field. It's quite a classical field for robotics. We have um, a lot of systems that um, for the inspection for example of our structural parts if you think of a big panel if, if it's a it can be for example a composite panel where you already have um, ultrasonic array systems which a robot will um, will lead alongside the big part and then makes this automated inspection but if you want to go for more let's say Mm, complex geometries, for example, if you imagine you have some kind of frame with a Z-shape or, or Z-shape where you cannot just simply, um, uh, where it's not easily to access, there it's really a question of how you have designed these shapes. Um, if you design them in a way that you have open accessibility, then you can also automate it inspection, at least with, let's say, today's state-of-the-art technology for, for robotic anti-factors. Um, and this is exactly already something where you need to have a design for automation aspect. So the person that um, makes the design for a specific new part with specific requirements on the strength and thickness already has to think about to make the, the shape in such a way that you can use an automated system so that we can later, um, in the process where we have to then check the, the quality of the part, 
uh, really have uh, use of an automated system and maybe plus even an AI in the background. I really like this point about the shape design because I think I'm, I'm really passionate about design. But I think in academia, I would like to mention that we don't think about this, uh, as you mentioned, how this correlated to automation and uh, in industry. But if you can tell us an example of just a complex shape, for example, if you do design for student listening and interested to work uh, in aerospace sector, if you design a complex shape, how you think about the consequences about the shape design? What is that, the, the trick you do? Is it something like intuition uh, or, or there's certain tool that can help you to figure out that the shape could be visible to be implemented in, uh, for automation? Yeah, we have, I mean, we have definitely for, for designing, especially in the early phase when we are still talking about non-specific design, we have several tools um, which can help us to understand in an early phase what would be the impact of using a specific geometry. What is very common um, in the design of an, of an aircraft is that anyway you have a, a so-called space allocation model where you can see all the interactions of all the parts that you're modeling and you would know where you have some kind of collision. And practically you do the same when you talk about automation and robots. You use the same kind of, uh, like, uh, I mean, programs like RoboCut where you can see already the impact of um, if your end effector would actually be able to reach all the places in your design that you have done. So these kind of virtual iteration loops is more or less already a standard of what we use uh, in most of our product design. And um, I expect we will apply it even much more uh, in the design of the next, of the next aircraft. Um, we have also had we had also had research work, actually some PhDs, on the topic of how you can have a system that automatically analyzes a proposed structure and then, based on the geometrical analysis, tells you which kind of, for example, inspection methods you can actually use because they would be able to cope with this geometry. So this is a bit like the, the backwards processing where you first do then your, your design, but then you have an assessment which tells you, okay, in this place, you can use this automation system because it can reach it. In this place, you have to use another one. And by this, you can also get an early on assumption how efficient in production terms or in inspection terms, your design would be. That's a very interesting point. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah. So if I ask you what are the current challenges for your technical work, you still face? Maybe it's super challenging for you. Yeah, uh, that's a wide, wide range. I mean, basically, we are, our job is there because we have so many challenges. So um, I think to, to, to narrow it down back to robotics, uh, what we see as challenges there, one of the big challenges still today is to get the acceptance of robots on the shop floor level. And not only of robots, but autonomous, autonomous system. So the acceptance of our workforce, um, not only the workforce, also managers, decision makers, that we have autonomous systems in the production system. Um, that is for somebody who worked in an environment which is purely dominated by, by humans and, and people. And then there's a change where you have maybe some autonomous um, robot driving around on the shop floor. This is still a, a matter of, um, of acceptance, simply of the people. Um, that's a big challenge that we have to solve. Um, another one is the ability to control um, and predict our manufacturing system when we add more and more partially autonomous systems in it. 
Um, of course, this changes the whole complex interaction of the system. And yes, we have not yet the experience with it. So this will be a, a big challenge for us in the future um, to change our ways of prediction and controlling. Of course, in the, the direct collaboration between human and machine, um, that's a big challenge for many reasons, for safety reasons, for understanding. And safety is not always, it's not just saving the human in this collaboration, but also ensuring that the outcome of this collaboration is, um, is a safe product um, and applies to the safety standards. So there we have a lot of challenges. And actually we are working also in the, in the standardization group, in the ISO group for robots and robotic devices. And, and safety requirements for it, and also for robot systems and integration. So I think that's ISO 10.21-something. Um, there we are actually taking part as Airbus, as a big manufacturer, um, to feedback our experience, but also to get it from the other members of it, and then to ensure that we have standards on that. Um, so this is a big part of, of our challenges uh, when it comes to automation and robotics. Um, and then, of course, we have a big challenge in what Romaric referred first to the qualification of AI for safe usage um, on flying platforms in, in our systems. Um, and then also dealing with how we can, how we can use more and more elaborate um, uh, functions of artificial intelligence, which today are already um, there, but not fully integrated or not yet integratable in our system. For the most interesting project, I mean, just to to, to give also other examples, I mean, for sure, um, we, we, we try to do manufacturing, I mean, we have a roadmap towards doing manufacturing in space, uh, which would be a very interesting uh, adventure, uh, both for the robotic aspect and the AI aspect. So the, the, the idea is really to use robots that would assemble uh, satellites or spacecraft in space. So this is uh, really something uh, which is uh, very interesting. Also, another project, and we can provide references for this project, is the Simon uh, project, uh, which is about having um, a flying virtual assistant. Uh, in space, and uh, in fact, we do have uh, already something. I mean, uh, first version of Simon uh, flying into the internal uh, international space uh, station, and we are working on the second uh, generation. So, these are very interesting uh, project where both AI and robotics are are, are coming uh, together, and we could um, also go to more. But these two are are good examples. Mm -hmm. That's great. I would like to ask you this question. I, I don't know if you can uh, answer it uh, yeah, for the context of the podcast, but I think that kind of discussion we had all the time about uh, the commercial space flight. For example, Richard Branson has done that, uh, I think, since five years ago or so, and also Elon Musk uh, about commercialization of space flight. Do you agree with that, uh, this concept? And do you think Airbus would be trying to do something in Australia in this uh, in this line or it's not safe enough? Because there's a lot of argument about uh, commercial uh, space flight for tourism, for example. Or in the, yeah, I don't know what you thought about that. Well, I think the, 
I cannot elaborate on the, let's say, on an Airbus position on this, but f from a, let's say, personal point of view, on one hand side, I think it's always good if you have, if you have many players in a technical field to, let's say, um, increase the, the diversity and to find good solutions. That's, that's very clear. Then what makes, I think, aerospace industry, and specifically if you go to space, quite outstanding is the safety levels that we are applying and how we how we try to whatever we are building we always try to build upon this uh, this level of safety that we already have because there's so much at stake and i think that that must be the uh, really one of the key aspects in whatever you're doing if you um if you bring more more players in the field i, I think this must be in the foreground that you you are not compromising uh, your safety and apart from that i'm not a space expert but as the as the airspace also space itself at least in the vicinity of of the earth in in the orbit is quite full and crowded and i think we have to all of us not just aerospace industry everyone has to also ensure that also the future generations can assess the airspace as well as space around the earth in the same way so this is whoever does it if it's commercial or if it's if it's public or military it needs to be clear that the access to these let's say human assets stays open for all of us so we have to be very responsible on how much we put where i think this is really this is really key no matter which industry um so for the given current situation, how does Airbus uh, envision the effective deployment of uh, robotics to mitigate the risk of human-worker interaction? I think that we said earlier about the COVID situation, but I think the other concern that comes from this question is how we can ensure there is no social inequality happening because there are a lot of workers do uh, the repetitive work as a source of income. And when we uh, deploy robotics for, uh, for the solution as an uh, in, in aerospace industry, do you think that uh, how the public will affected by that people who doesn't have the skill to work in technology? Do you think that's kind of a concern or is not not a legitimate point? How do you see this kind of social inequality when we deploy robotics and work? Uh, I think I, I hear two questions out of that. One is the, the safety aspects of the interaction and when humans and robots shall work together. So what we are doing there is on one hand side, we do a very gradual deployment. And we also try to, uh, we always focus on the, on the safety, uh, on the physical safety aspects first. Um, then we also try to apply it, let's say, first in, in uh, applications where also, let's say, the human is very happy that this work is done by somebody else. I think this is a this is a, a very good entry point, and of course in the first phases, this is why I say it's a gradual deployment. We need to also to create familiarity um, of the people for what it means to work with a with a robotic system or with an autonomous system, because many of the fears and uh, let's say the yeah, the fears and the, the, the restrictions that that people envision is coming from not really knowing. Um, what the capabilities are, what they are not, and what the applications are. So familiarity, as a, so that we have the same basis of discussing good applications, is the first step. And if you look at our practical projects that we do, if we implement, for example, a new HV system on the shop floor, 
the very first step is really talking with the people who are dealing with it, who are doing the tasks um, on what they think would be the best and helpful idea and to develop solutions from there on. So um, this is how we at least try to uh, manage in the short and midterm the transition to a, let's say, a more automated um, system. Then if you ask about the social implications of, um, of having more and more automated system, um, I think that's, an, that's actually a, a wider question which goes towards the social implication of having more and more technology um, inside a working environment. You, I mean, people asked the same questions 20 years ago about the move to more IT. Uh, there was a time when we were not using Outlook for our communication. And we had a lot of departments which were, let's say, which major task it was to bring one paper written memo from my office to maybe Romeric's office. They don't exist anymore. Of course, these kind of developments are, are part of what happens with technology. But then if you look at it, it has not led to less jobs. It has actually led to more jobs. And I don't say this is always the development. I'm just saying the, the implications that new technologies bring is not aut automatically that you just lose something. It just means a lot of change and adaptation. Um, and that's a matter of how you manage this adaptation. If you want, this is nearly an evolutionary principle. Yeah, that's a very good point. And I think uh, we discussed this in the podcast frequent. I think also about paid education in general for, yeah, and that's kind of job, new job will be eliminated by coming years and new opportunities will come up. So I agree with your point of view. So here's a question from the audience about which level simulation is effective at aerospace industry in terms of design and flight operation. Because I think this question related about physical physical system, like when you go to aviation, it's super challenging, highly dynamic system and 3D. So how simulation could be effective in predicting how the performance of the, uh, the airplane or the flight operation would be before going into actual process? We, we, we have ways uh, through the understanding of uh, computational fluid dynamics, for example, so we can, uh, we can for sure, with model-based approach, uh, we can simulate a lot on two very uh, high level of uh, fidelity. Uh, we also do have a lot of tests which are used together with the simulation in a way that it is a win-win situation so that we can potentially uh, improve uh, the simulation means. So we try to develop this concept of uh, digital twins so we can really assess uh, really more of the capacity of the aircraft and uh, uh, really looking at uh, validating all uh, the performance uh, using more simulation. Um, also, um, we also now try to combine uh, this model-based approach uh, with artificial intelligence techniques, which helps to better understand uh, results from flight tests or results from simulation, so that we can really also build new models uh, reusing the data. But this is... Um, uh, this this is something where we are, uh, I mean, for sure, aerospace industry is one of the industry where we do the more uh, simulation for the sake of 
testing uh, the performance of the aircraft and verifying and validating uh, this performance and ultimately also iterating with uh, physical testing uh, to really uh, come to the level where we can prove to authorities uh, the performance and the safety of our system. So we, we do have to come with justification uh, for all what we do uh, in terms of uh, ensuring we have followed the right process and also we have obtained the right level of uh, guarantees uh, on the way we design uh, the aircraft. So, yeah, this is uh, what we are updating at the moment because if we use some kind of a artificial intelligence in the design of the aircraft, we will have to also ensure that it has been done in a way where we provide all the required guarantees uh, to the authority. And this is what we are working on because we need to update the certification approach uh, together with authorities uh, to take into account this kind of new technology. I mean, very shortly, what I can say is the more challenging problem for artificial intelligence will be to use it on board for safety critical functions in the context of commercial aircraft, military aircraft, urban air mobility, on deep space missions. So it's the step to bring it into uh, on board for safety critical function. So this is the, the, the really the challenge we have ahead of us. I would like to ask you what are the most interesting research or application of AI in aviation aerospace industry beyond the simulation? What something could be interesting? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, um, some, it depends what, what we mean by interesting, uh, because uh, interesting is quite used for many different kinds of meanings. But if you think interesting in terms of uh, value it brings to the business, then uh, already currently AI is very efficient to extract information from satellite imagery, to do predictive maintenance, to automate perception tasks um, more generally. If you think about interesting uh, in the sense of exciting, uh, for sure uh, application, application links to more autonomous flying platforms uh, are, are very exciting or providing uh, virtual assistant in uh, internal, international space station. Uh, these are, this is very exciting. Um, if you think interesting as important, uh, then it's really the topic about uh, certifiable and trusted artificial intelligence, uh, which is a major axis of research for Airbus, uh, because this is an area where uh, today we don't have the required level of guarantee with modern AI, which is uh, data-driven AI. So data-driven AI is a way to achieve a high level of performance, but not necessarily a way to get high level of guarantee. And this is really an area where uh, Airbus uh, is investing to become a leader in terms of research and also application uh, for ensuring a safe uh, introduction of AI into our flying platforms, but also for on-ground 
applications. And I think the question related here, uh, do you think ego is important while working in development sector for aerospace industry? Of course, when you have a design or idea, sometimes there's a lot of ego happening that I have this opinion. So how do you think ego plays a game in deposing new ideas or arguments and design or technical problems while you're working? No, no, we do. We do. I mean, not related to ego. I mean, we, we, we are pushing for a speak-up culture inside Airbus. So we, we do want people to voice uh, any kind of um, observation issue they would see or proposal they would have that could have, uh, for example, uh, uh, an impact on uh, improving the safety. Uh, so... We do, uh, th there is a culture about uh, speaker listening and um, all of that is going more in the other direction that we should not just um, be uh, um, executing um, messages which are uh, coming uh, top down and so on. So, I mean, this aspect of uh, ego, I think we are more trying to uh, promote uh, really uh, an open collaboration uh, between the different uh, um, employee engineers, partners. And uh, this is actually quite um, something important as we are dealing with a complex system of systems. So uh, as mentioned by Reinil, we need really to understand all uh, the the different concerns to do the, the best trade-off and so this is more the way we, we we try to move forward well i would say as Omeric says i think our the challenge in in our environment where we have these complex systems of systems is that we have all the the stakeholders being and living in an environment where you can really be open about what you're doing and where other people also support you so there is not much let's say, room for too much egoistic behavior on this, which does not mean that we don't have often some very, let's say, highly visionary, visionary um, individuals on every level which push certain ideas. And this is also promoted, but they don't do it alone. They, they maybe give a lot of energy to it, but then we have, let's say, our whole ecosystem um, supporting that and trying then to build great ideas. I mean... Things like a green aircraft thought or urban air mobility in the very, very beginning were just a few people with very good visions and ideas. But if you see what we have made out of it in Airbus into complex, large projects with many people included, and even partners outside Airbus, that shows that we built from so visionary ideas of people, we built a complex cooperative ecosystem. And, and I think this is the, the way how we always try to operate. I mean, this is the founding idea in the end of how Airbus was generated from several, let's say, nation companies which overcame egoism and silos to build one Airbus together. I mean, this was the start and this is still the spirit that we are living to. So maybe uh, there is a student, maybe maybe a student interested to join Airbus, maybe. And the question is, what are the most important qualities if you would like to join Airbus Research and Development? I can answer this question or at least try to frame something around it because uh, Airbus is still a very big company and we have, 
I think, currently more than 120,000 employees and a lot of different job profiles. But if you ask for some universal qualities, then I would say one which is really, really important, especially in our line of work, so everything about development and R&T, that you have to be eager to always learn. It doesn't matter on which level you are, how high in the seniority of the company, how much you have learned before, if you have a PhD or not, you need to be you need to embrace learning because we are always learning new things and new technologies. Like 10 years ago, we would not talk about AI inside the company, but now, or at least not on the levels we do today. Now, a lot of people do because they have learned and they've changed. The second thing is what we just referred before. You really need to believe that teams and cooperation is the way of how you accomplish work. And you should have also some skills on that. You should have done it before. You should have worked with others together not only in being able to speak with other people, but really also knowing what kind of collaborative tools are used today. Um, maybe to also learn this at university already. Um, there's a lot of tools which today really support this. And I think it's, it's good if you, have a, if you have some basic training in it. And then, of course, we have a lot of different profiles. And um, in Airbus, uh, since quite some time, we are also really pushing for diversity in all kinds of manners, be it gender, be it uh, where you're coming from, or be it whatever is your orientations, we really push for having diverse teams and we have a lot of internal initiatives on this. So openness to diversity is really also a, a clear precondition that somebody should have who wants to, uh, who wants to be part of ever. And for the book, which book inspired you, uh, was a few and would recommend? So on books in terms of inspiring nothing to do with the robotic at all uh, for me it's it's david copperfield from charles dickens um, because it's a story about an, an orphan boy um, who has let's say the worst preconditions in life but um, but still manages to make a great life and is also helped by some people so it's it's a true story of hope i would say and it's it's my favorite inspiration which because it just tells you how bad your initial situation really might be depending on yourself and also on your values you can end up everywhere and this is something i i really uh, believe in so I, I like this one a lot i i can't agree more i read this book and i was crying when i'm reading but uh, yeah it's just i agree with everyone to say it's a fantastic book yeah and for Merrick, yeah. I was more thinking something in the scope of um, helping me at work. And something which was uh, very interesting was um, a book which is called uh, The Learning Organization. Um, it's called The Fifth Discipline. It's from Peter uh, Senge, uh, which was and I think is still an MIT professor. And I think this book is very interesting because ultimately this is what I would advise to 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 aim for, um, building a learning organization. So maybe you're not the best at, at a given point in time, but if you have a good learning organization, this is the way to become competitive and this is the way to also develop um, people and so on. So it's it's a key aspect that i have always tried to to push for mm -hmm. yeah great so finally what, what was the best advice was given uh, to you as a person professionally and was a life changing something in your journey was a life changing advice 
Yeah, on my side, I I mean, it's a well-known one, but which is very applicable for what we do in Airbus is um, uh, it's said to be an African uh, proverb, uh, which says, "Alone you go faster, together we go further," and this is something which is highly applicable to all what we do uh, inside Airbus. That's a great. And for Renhold, do you have any? The advice he had given to you was the life changing. I think um, one of the best advices was when I was standing in front of decisions um, that people, at least some, told me to go for what I really like and what I think deep down in my heart is the best option, even if it doesn't look like the most easy option on the short term. Um, to really go for what you what you believe. And normally, and along with this advice goes, what you might believe and what you want is not coming maybe in the short term. But if you stick to it, then nearly 100% in the midterm it will come and there will be new occasions where you can exactly achieve it. But you have to stick to this, to your, to your own truth about it. So thinking beyond your short benefit, I think is one, especially also for students, when they want to go for something and have this initial idea, and then think, oh, it was so hard in my studies, it was so hard to get the first job, that does not mean that you need to give up on your dream. This can still come in the next step or in the step after that. Do you have any final words for robotics community would like to say? Well, I would say, especially for such a community like this, in an, I would say still emerging technology, um, that at least from my experience, technologies really need the right time for when they can really evolve and be applied and sometimes they also just need luck to penetrate a specific sector so just if, as an example if you look at tablet computers in the 90s people tried to introduce a tablet computer then in 2000 microsoft tried to introduce a tablet computer and the breakthrough was only in 2010 with a very well-known company with a very well-known product and this can this is typical for technology so this this means you have to stick with your belief and what you can achieve and then also try to sometimes wait for the right time. It's not something you can always, um, on the short term, try to realize. So especially for if you talk about soft robotics and applying it in, in manufacturing systems and everywhere in society, I believe there will be a good portion in the future which will um, involve developments coming out of the soft robotics initiative. Um, and you have to stick to it and you have to further look for, look for applications. Um, and for me, we are just at the beginning of this, and especially when combined with AI, I believe there will be very powerful solutions and applications today we cannot even think of, but it will be really interesting in the next 10 to 15 years see how this will gradually change our, our world, basically. And so I think it's, uh, you really need to, to stick to this if you, if you have the belief and the interest, and then to maybe be there at the time when the when the iPad of the soft robotics will emerge. Thanks so much, Rahel Marek. It's really, really enjoyable discussion. And I would like to thank you for the time you have been doing that preparation and everything. So thanks so much for your time. And yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure to do this podcast with you. Uh, yeah, thank you so much.